As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. And we're back, people, for another episode of The Malcolm Effect. You know how it goes, bringing you all political education in a way that is concise, relevant, and accessible. Today, I can't lie, I'm super, super excited. And I say this every week, but I am, like, sincerely super excited for our guest today, Dr. Vikram Gill. I came across his amazing talk on the People's Forum recently in which he was speaking about the different types of socialism or political economy trends in China currently. So welcome to the Malcolm Effect. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much. We're going to go straight into it, people. And today is all things political economy. I mean, those who follow my social media will know by now I cannot stop speaking about political economy and the need to root our analysis in the material. So we're going to go straight into it. I'm going to ask you, I think we should define our terms. So when we say political economy, what the hell do we mean? Okay, so, I mean, political economy, so I teach some classes on it here at Virginia Tech. So the way I try to kind of break it down to begin with is you, ju- you can just take those two terms, political and economic, right, and think about what they signify. So if you think about the field of economics, it's often concerned with questions around distribution, exchange, production, and consumption, right? And conventionally, they're, they're often in the 20th century, they were kind of put apart. Here's political science, here's economics, right? But yeah. politics is more about the study of power, the study of government, the study of authority. So it's kind of, you put those two things together, right? How are the way in which society mobilizes, marshals its resources, distributes and exchanges them, how are they structured by certain relations of power, right? Uh, So it's it's to bring together the study of power with the study of production is maybe how I would kind of uh, put put it forward. And and, and there's a political reason why it's separated, right? Because the there's a way in which we are led, we are meant to, within a capitalist mode of production, to believe that economics are governed by scientific laws that are outside of the play of power, right? That are outside yeah. of historical processes. So political economy is important to put those things together. Absolutely. And I think, you, again, you've kind of hit the nail on the head in what I've been trying to say a lot of the time, that it's important that we continuously root our analysis, whether it's going to be of race, of gender, particularly when we're speaking about dispossession and oppression, that we root our analysis in the material. Otherwise, we end up in constant abstractions and, oh, and we never get to the root of what is the cause of dispossession. So thank you very much for that. So, I mean, you mentioned like production several times in the last two minutes. I have to ask you, what is meant by the means of production and why do we always talk about it? So, yeah, the means of production is the, I guess, what to, again, uh, try to simplify it, the means of production is, is precisely what it says, the means through which society kind of produces its resources and reproduces itself, right? So wh- how does a particular social formation organize its relations in order to engage, undertake production, right? So you have, a, you have a, a mode of production which has both relations of production and forces of production, right? And so mm-hmm. you can think about relations of production and means of production as being organized through certain property relations, right? Who owns what and what is the motivation for production undertaken by 
the owners of the means of production. So the means of production are the tools. You can think about capital. You can think about land. You can think about labor, right, through which production is enabled, right? But the means of production themselves are structured through certain uh, relations of production, right? So there's a kind of dialectical relationships between owners and workers or between different social groups in relation to the what Marxists call the objective forces of production, right? So which okay. is like machinery, capital, and so on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Again, you cannot exist in leftist circles without hearing the word dialectical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> dialectical thinking, historical materialism. So when we say historical materialism or dialectical materialism, what do we mean by that? And what are we talking about? So I think uh, what I will first really emphasize is Mm -hmm. the text that people should read if they really want to understand. And Marx really never used the language himself of dialectical materialism. I mean, that comes kind of afterwards and especially under Stalin, right? That it it really becomes, I guess, consolidated. But I would really encourage your listeners to go to the German ideology by Karl Marx, right? That's like, I think the fundamental text where he lays down what he calls his materialist method or what he calls the materialist conception of history, right? And so this is a a wide-ranging engagement with uh, Hegel and the German ideologist of Feuerbach uh, more generally. And it's in very many many ways, Marx is engaging in an auto-critique here as well, right? Because he's very much coming through Hegel. So the materialist conception of history, which I think Engels later calls historical materialism and later uh, dialectical materialism, it begins with Marx engaging very closely with the German idealists, right? So this idea that they had was that history moves through the movement of ideas and concepts, right? And essences, Mm -hmm. and that the the social can be identified as an expression, kind of these underlying ideas or essences that move history, right? And, And Marx kind of flips that on his head. He famously says, I put Hegel on his head. And his point is, is that, look, it's not consciousness that makes life, but life that makes consciousness, right? So we need to look Mm. actually, we need to begin by looking in a materialist conception of history, by taking a concept and and look at the social relations from which that concept arises. Don't take the concept as given, right? Interrogate the material conditions out of which it arises. So what does that mean, right? So in the German ideology, Marx famously says, look, uh, before you know, Hegel, before you can come up with this ideal in the spirit, you know, you forget that you must eat, you must live, and you must be housed in order to be able to undertake these philosophical reflections, right? So and he's arguing that that's not separate from your philosophical reflections. The material form through which a society is organized and the contradictions, yeah. right, in the relations of production between, say, owners and workers that holds the key to understanding the major contradictions of a society, right? So it's not in ideas, but in how a society is socially organized. So historical materialism asks us to look at the organizing relations of power at a material level of a society, but it is not deterministic, right? So that's important, even though it's dialectical, right? So it's not that the, the way in which a, a social process looking at how it's organized, looking at how it's owned, looking at how exploitation is happening, doesn't mean then those give rise to ideas and it's just a one-way process. It's dialectical, so then ideas do impact back on the productive forces, right? Mm. But you simply cannot take analysis that looks at ideas and concepts detached from their material conditions, right? And so like I can give an example, you know, so if you were to look at something like a concept that is quite popular, suppose where I am in the United States, which is freedom, right? So like when you look at the way in which the U.S. society understands itself and its place in the world 
and the way in which it projects its power, it's often through this concept of freedom as being a free society that's promoting freedom, right? Now, a historical materialist analysis would open up that concept to see, well, how did that arise historically, right? Okay, mm-hmm. then that would, that, that would lead to an understanding of how freedom operates ideologically, right? It comes to stand, even though it's represented as freedom for all, it really represents a bourgeois freedom for capital, right? And yes. what it means by authoritarianism is those projects that constrain the movement of capital, right? So if in the third world there's a project of nationalization, okay, a material analysis wouldn't stay, okay, is this actually freedom or not? It would be like, okay, what's actually happening is capital is seeking to overcome limits that it's confronting elsewhere in the world. We're saying in, in Venezuela or China or Iran, yeah. you know, industries have been nationalized. That's a, that's a limit on capital accumulation, but it's ideologically represented as a project of, of, uh, of spreading freedom, right? So I think a historical yeah. materialist analysis would look at the underlying kind of production relations that are driving processes forward. Yeah, so. No, no, thank you so much. And I think that's super important because when we think about, let's say, dealing with race issues in, let's say, liberal circles, we find that because of their kind of underpinning ideology, they are led to like diversity and inclusion. That's their kind of way of dealing with race, race issues or racial disparity. When really and truly what a historical account would say is, okay, let's give a causal account of how this disparity is, is caused. So yeah. for example, Adolf Reed Jr. famously speaks on, he famously, or he you know, quite often speaks of, okay, the headline was Black people die at a disproportionate rate from COVID, for example. And then the liberal media response is that, oh, it's because of racism. But again, racism being an abstraction does not answer what are the mechanisms that cause that disparity. And I think historical materialism, materialist approach is important when we interrogate, okay, what is actually happening here? And I think, mm-hmm. I think it's the only way at this point, personally. I think it's the only way at this point to actually get to the crux of the matter or uncover the kernel of what's actually happening. So thank you so much for that. I think that's a great example, the diversity and inclusion around around race, right? So something that I've I've often remarked is that, uh, and especially this speaks to the way in which anti-racism today is often divorced from anti-imperialism, right? So like there's a yep. way in which there's a, in not undertaking a materialist analysis, right? We lose sight of how, how race is fundamentally tied to questions of sovereignty, right? Who can Absolutely. and cannot be sovereign? Who can and com- cannot hold power? And how that's tied to the general system of capitalism, right? So like you can include somebody and say, okay, we need to include indigenous peoples in Canada into the state without addressing the question that the denial of sovereignty to indigenous peoples is fundamental to Canadian capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. And so like you you might try to increase positions in universities. You might try to open up the curriculum in certain ways without addressing the fundamental kind of relation that underpins anti-indigenous racism, right? And I think there's there's an interesting example where you can think about, and I, I emphasize this one a lot, the, you know, in the early Spanish conquest, somebody who is often identified as the first human rights activist, Las Casas, right? He, he makes this okay. point of advocating for indigenous human rights, but he never questions Spanish sovereignty over uh, the Americas, right? So the idea is, okay, we can include them, right? But as subordinates, Right without ever really addressing the distribution of sovereignty of property and the way in which race actually is integral to reproducing yeah. capitalism on a world scale, right? So I think that's a very, very good example. And I think there's a, and you there's a risk. It. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, you ahead. mentioned it as well in your in the talk for People's Forum. You said mm-hmm. that it's also who is rational and who is irrational, mm-hmm. and and capitalism will continue to reproduce those hierarchies for, for it to for it to work, yeah. for it to like justify itself, for it to maintain mm-hmm. itself, to it to maintain the mystification that capitalism does. It will have to produce these hierarchies. So yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, and, I, and I, that was a point that I actually noted down. So okay, so you mentioned then if we're saying this dialectical relationship between the material and our ideas and there's like an interplay between them and they both inform each other what then is marxist beef it seems with the concept of human nature and again obviously i hope you can tell by the way i'm asking i'm just a proxy to common questions that i asked <laughs> it's not why <laughs> i'm just a pro- i'm just acting as a proxy so people will say you know the common discourse is that the likes of you know milton friedman will say things like, you know, capitalism is merely an extension of our human nature. Our right. human nature is to be individualistic, is to be greedy, and we have just built an economic system that reflects that. And then people will say, no, Marxists will traditionally say, no, these traits which we have been socialized to believe as innate are actually a result of our relationship to the production, how we've divided labor and how we've divided who gets what. So then my question again is, what is Marxist beef with human nature? Is it that whole scale Marxists reject the concept of human nature or is it that we interrogate it further? Yeah, I think in my, in my reading of Marx, and again, this is something you can find in many of his texts, but a key kind of text that's been influential for me again is the German ideology. But I think yeah. I would agree that he, Marx doesn't speak of human nature, right? There is no conception okay. that there is a human nature, but that, that doesn't mean that Marx would disagree with Friedman and saying humans aren't greedy. Right. He would oh, just yeah. say people have capacities, not natures. Right. Mm. Like that, that, that we have the capacity to be greedy, to be selfish, you know, to have an ego kind of centered uh, approach. But there's also a capacity of cooperation. Right. There also is yeah. a capacity for mutuality and so forth. And I think I wouldn't have too much to add to it. <laughs> I think you said it brilliantly there. Right. Like, I think uh, <laughs> well, but I just think it's like human nature. is. Uh, it's not human nature, but the capacities are historically produced. So which capacities. Okay end up being cultivated and emphasized depends upon the social organization, the social relations in existence in a given time, right? So this is within our control and without, right? So there's a dialectic, again, between relations and forces of production. You have to look at the definite historical period you're in. Yeah. But it does mean that organization can structure our capacities, right? And this is where I think there's some tension, of course, between Marxian and, say, anarchist approaches, right? But there's a way in which is an emphasis like even if you read Lenin's State and Revolution, right? Like there's yeah. a very clear, or some of the discussions in China and the contemporary discussion of the long road to developing socialist capacities, right? Like yeah. uh, Lenin was clear in State and Revolution, look, the bourgeois elements, the feudal elements, they're not going to disappear overnight, right? Absolutely. That it's going to be a long road to developing this capacity. Now, the other thing I'll say around human nature is even that second part around nature, right, is... Yeah. Marx, like, so my own research, I do a lot of, in addition to political economy, political ecology, right? And so there's a way in which Marx can take you into a historical understanding of nature itself, right? So when he's critiquing the German ideologist, he's like, look, you speak of essences, right? You speak of these essences, but you can't even find that anywhere in the natural world, right? When you look out at nature, right? And Mm -hmm. And you think you are seeing something untouched and something pristine, you're actually ideologically obscuring the historical processes that would have produced that landscape itself, right? So it's quite interesting the way, you know, he talks about the historical kind of social 
metabolism between society and non-human nature to in such an extent that you can't even take refuge in a concept of nature outside of society with Marx. That doesn't mean that that doesn't mean he doesn't leave space. Is, but there's a way in which I, and your listeners might find it interesting that Marx's work led in biology to this kind of approach called niche construction theory, right? Which there was this book written called The Dialectical Biologist, right? And it was really fascinating work that looked at, if you look at quote unquote nature dialectically, right? It looks at yeah. how, say, organisms and the environment shape one another, right? And so there's no essence also to nature in the same way, right? It's a dynamic dialectical process that humans are also enmeshed in, right? So, you know, because there's a problem problem sometimes with environmentalism where it kind of seeks, especially a kind of white environmentalism, which often yeah. uh, seeks refuge in a nature beyond society, right? In a pristine kind of nature. So I think there's a way in which both human nature and nature nature is historic, is, is rendered historical in, in Marx. Thank you so much for that again. <laughs> Honestly, this is like a masterclass for you people. You see how I'm keeping bringing you a lot of heat? <laughs> I will have to ask them. Okay, so I have so many questions and so many thoughts in my head. I think another kind of concrete example of how our capacities are even, if say, exacerbated, particularly one of greed. Naturally, when you have, and I just want to give an example, when you have conditions of scarcity and then you have to distribute those, you don't have things accessible to you like as in like uh, resources of course you're going to produce different hierarchies of course you're going to produce okay some people are going to be left without and again that's and then naturally in those conditions of scarcity you're, dialectically you're going to produce greed you're going to produce people who want more so yeah i find other than like maybe like innate maybe things that the desire to kind of maybe eat drink and you know desire for survival beyond that i find it very hard pressed to believe that we have things that are innate in us like that that's just my kind of opinion yeah can i add one one point to what you're saying there so you know you, like uh, and i would maybe like kind of push a little bit or or you know your point on besides maybe some innate things, right? Like a desire yeah. to, to, to eat, to reproduce, right? So this, this person is not a Marxist, but just as a small point, I would, I would encourage people to think about, and I, I've been doing it recently. I taught a course on him yeah. last year. Talal Assad, I guess he's a, a theorist of secularism. He's a critic of secularism, right? And uh -huh. uh, he has this kind of idea of tradition, right? That there's no human life, even when it comes to innate things, like outside of the okay. traditions in, in which we live. So he looks, he studies Islam and medieval Christianity quite a bit but kind of like looking at how our, you know, even very innate capacities, how we cultivate and shape them through okay. the traditions that we inherit. And the, he's saying the conceit of Western secularism is that it makes us believe that we can actually be autonomous, right? It, it hides from us uh, the traditions under which we must be cultivated, uh, our capacities, however innate, must be cultivated. And that's, I think, an interesting critique of, of capitalism too. It's fetish of yeah. the autonomous individual, right? It leads you to believe that you're free, but you're actually still structured by the capitalist mode of production, right? Wow. Okay. Thanks for that. Thanks for that intervention, actually. So you mentioned a few things, and I'm just trying to think of how can I structure these questions to kind of keep the good keep a, a flow. Mm -hmm. Let's go on to what is meant by private property, because again, in the kind of the mindscape of so many people, people who have been, many of us who've been socialized in, in capitalist economy, many of us think when we say private property or abolish private property, we're talking about <laughs> taking away your iPhone or, or taking yeah. away your laptop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, or even or even people will say like I'm gonna lose my house, right? And like I mean, exactly. And under under socialism, those are debates that are, are, are you know that can be had around social social housing and public housing and so forth, right? But I think yeah. the key thing to remember is that under uh, for Marx, like private property, the, his concern is with bourgeois private property, right? Yeah. So this is and he distinguishes this very clearly from real <laughs> private or real personal property, right? So like yeah. the real producers actually lose their pro- property who are the real producers these are the workers right so the yeah. the process in the in the chapters on primitive accumulation at the end of capital volume 1 right the process of enclosure that marx maps out right where different yeah. forms of property right whether this is feudal whether this is the commons right whether this is peasant land different forms of property that are enclosed by in the in the birth of capital right yeah. that then it, what it does is it, it creates two classes, a class that's entirely dispossessed from ownership and a class that monopolizes ownership over the means of production, right? The means of production, again, that we talked about before, like in this case, land, right? So yeah. now it's the private ownership over the means of production that is the concern. Now, why is that a problem? Well, because the means of production are inherently social, right? Like yes. they are, in order to develop the means of production, in order to act on them, in order to put them into motion, you need social labor. Right? Like Marx is very clear, yeah. capital is not a thing. It's a relationship, right? So this yes. private property is meaningless if you don't have labor, right? If, uh, and that, but the only labor that can put it in motion is a dispossessed labor that is compelled to work for the owners mm. of that property. So now the, but what happens is the value that is produced therein is appropriated privately, right? That's the yes. contradiction, right? You have a social production, right, of capital, but it's owned privately, Right. And so that that is the contradiction then that is that can be resolved in the movement to socialism and then to communism. Right. So I think yeah. that's that's what we need to keep an eye on. It's not talking about your iPhone. It's not talking about <laughs> your, your sneakers. It's not talking even about it's not even as concerned about your house or exactly. anything or your car. Right. It's about the, the ownership over the means of production and that contradiction between social production and private ownership of the means and fruits of production. I just want to, again, because, again, I, I do set these podcasts out in a way that is simple for people to understand. So I just want to kind of maybe strip that back a little bit, because mm-hmm. you said quite a bit, and maybe you can kind of, if I've understood correctly, what you're saying essentially is value in society is created by the masses of people who have no choice but to sell their labor. That value then is appropriated and and exploited and owned privately. And that is a contradiction that we're trying to overcome. Is that correct? Yes, yes, correct. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So then, in moving on then, you mentioned just now the transition from capitalism to socialism, or we want to bring about socialism in the end, communism. We have to define what then is socialism. And then in your answer, if you could, because you mentioned imperialism before, why in your reading do you think that many of the social revolution took place in the global south as opposed to Marx's prediction that would take place amongst the industrialized proletariat? Okay, so that's a really important question. It's a really big question. So it's gonna take me. It's gonna take me a few minutes to work through it, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, of course. Okay, so the the first part around what is socialism? That was it was what is socialism and then imperialism, right? I think that was the two questions. And why why have socialist revolutions been more successful or only successful? In only the attempted. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what is socialism? Well, okay, at a very basic level, you know, you can say socialism is about the Rather than that private appropriation, it's a social appropriation, a social ownership of the means of production, right? Yeah. That that contradiction between social organization of production and private appropriation 
is overcome, right? Yeah. So, but that's a very, it's a, it's a long road because it's very difficult to put in place the conditions that can allow for, for th- that sort of relation of production to both be implemented and maintained in a context of a capitalist world system, right? So if yeah. one state becomes socialist, it still has the challenges of confronting a capitalist world. Now, I'll, I'll maybe come back to that. But first, I think to go through the question of imperialism in relation to capitalism, right? Yeah. And I think like you, if you saw the, the talk I gave at the People's Forum there, I think the, you know, people often will begin with imperialism with Lenin, which is really good. Right. And yeah. I think, how does, why does Lenin turn east? Right. Why does Lenin turn away from Europe? Exactly because, as you were suggesting, after the Bolshevik Revolution, the failures of proletariat revolutions in Europe, yeah. Lenin, he, for him, it's like, okay, I don't think there's something structural. Right. It's not just ideological. It wasn't an ide- like how you're saying around race. You know, there's something structural that made it impossible for these revolutions to take hold in, in Europe. Right. Like, what is it yeah. about labor? That keeps it invested in imperialism in the core and incapable to overthrow capital, right? And so then he yeah. looks east, right? And why does he look east? Because he looks at the second question, which is the national question, right? Yeah. And now, so Lenin looks at that as a particular stage of capitalism. But I think, as I mentioned in the People's Forum talk, I would follow Samir Amin and others who, and you know, this is the, that broad tradition of third world Marxism, which is Marxism, Marxism, right? But it's, I think it identifies this third world Marxism to differentiate it from like a Eurocentric Marxism yeah. that often takes hold. That's really dismissive, actually, of the struggles of people in the global South, right? So, but I think like Samir Amin, you know, in one of his later essays had a, had a kind of a critique of Lenin to be like, look, imperialism is not just the highest stage of capitalism. It is foundational to capitalism from its origin, right? Yeah. And that's something that in my own work, I really emphasize is that there's, if you only look, and in Marx, he definitely identifies in Capital Volume 1, now look, it's not just the enclosures in Europe that gives rise to capitalism. It's not just this process through which people were thrown off the land in Western Europe over a period of centuries that gives rise to a capitalist class and a dispossessed class, and then capitalism gets set in motion and then eventually expands through colonialism. Mm -hmm. He actually says, well, the actual origins of capitalism are in colonialism. Right. He has that famous paragraph mm. where he talks about enslavement, the kind of African slave trade, the yeah. entombment and minds of indigenous people, the battering down of the walls in China and in India. Like this is the what he says is the is the dawn of capitalism. But the problem mm-hmm. in Marx's text, and this is I always differentiate, like Marx's method, his historical materialist method, can help us address the limits in his own content. Right. So he doesn't mm. actually he doesn't then, the way he goes from the enclosures in Europe to come to capital labor, he doesn't really give as much analytical uh, significance to colonialism, right? So it's the origins that is kind of just a quantitative moment, right? So the colonialism gives a stock of resources that then allows capitalism to kind of get set in motion. But I think a lot of third world Marxists took what Marx left undone, like Samir Amin, and then they build into yeah. that actually what is underneath the capital labor relationship is the drain of value from the colonies to the core, right? Mm. Is what stabilizes capital labor in the core from the outset, right? Is that you have, say, food and industrial inputs coming in that can both repress the cost of labor and allow for sufficient profit. Because if that wasn't there, capital and labor would constantly be, be warring or labor would be worn down, 
right? Because the, the rate of profit that capital seeks wow. can destroy yeah. Yeah. the foundations of labor. But then, well, how can you maintain labor? But you need labor also as a consumer. You need a consuming class too, right? Yeah. But so then how do you maintain that space of both profit and the livability of labor, right? And yes. its consent to the system. Well, one thing that has been really key is provisioning cheap uh, inputs, like say cheap food, cheap coffee, cheap tea, right? Or be allowing yeah. labor to be able to consume. And well, how do you do that? Well, you repress the costs that are coming from the colonies, right? And so that's the wow. core periphery value drain that has always been fundamental to capitalism. It's not a secondary moment, right? So the, in this way, we think about capitalism, not simply as emerging through the enclosures in Europe, but through the conquest of the Americas and this, the initiation of the slave trade by the Portuguese and then other European powers, right? Those are the kind of originary moments. And therefore, you can't actually, if that is a key process of keeping labor invested in the system, of keeping labor disciplined, then how can you actually, in a material analysis, overcome that without first addressing the core periphery contradiction in the colonies, right? And yes. it's more acute in the colonies too, because that the costs of the capitalist system are ultimately externalized to the peripheries, right? This is where you have forms of dispossession that are so brutal that there is no space given to a reintegration into the system in the same way, right? So whereas those dispossessed in Europe can, through settler colonialism, find political inclusion and can make claims still, even as proletariat, they can make political claims through trade unions, through voting in the system. I'm not saying this to say the that labor is not repressed or exploited in the core, but it's yeah. given, it's, it's able to find a place in the system that is not the same as those who are indigenous peoples who are dispossessed in the Americas, right? those who are enslaved uh, from the African continent, right? those who are yeah. uh, colonized in India and elsewhere, they're not able to find a place in the system. And so the contradictions are more acute, right? They're more kind of uh, urgent. Wow. And so that's why I think so many of the movements of anti-colonialism. I got in a bit of trouble for <laughs> something I tweeted a couple of weeks ago around Marxism being really central to anti-colonialism. Right? And maybe I should have qualified that. It's not the only thing that has driven anti-colonialism, but there's a reason why it has always been so core, is yep. that anti-colonialism is fundamentally a rejection of capitalism because capitalism is a world systemic process instead of relations, right? And so to really yep. free yourself is to delink from that system. Right, which is kind of Samir Amin's argument. So then, like uh, to 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 launch an anti-colonial movement, whether it's Nkrumah, whether it's Ho Chi Minh, like the thinkers that come yeah. out of it, it's very clear to them our oppression is rooted in the global dynamics of capitalism, right? And so I think, yeah. and then the other material component is that for the masses, the popular classes of the periphery, right, they don't have a way to be reinvested. There's no class upon which they stand. So if labor stands in some ways upon the absolute exhaustion and immiseration of those dispossessed in the colonies, those dispossessed in the colonies don't have that, right? So they, yeah. that's where Fanon is really significant, Franz Fanon, right? So yeah. when, you read, when you read Fanon, like when you read, if you read Marx and Fanon side by side, it's quite fascinating, right? Because, um, you know, Fanon talks about famously the need to stretch Marxism uh, when it comes yes. to the colonies, right? But for Fanon, how can there be anything progressive about the history of capitalism <laughs> when you think about what it did to those in the yeah. peripheries and the colonies, right? Yeah. That's where um, I think uh, you, you need to stretch it. That's where Fanon goes to the countryside. He goes to the fella 
the peasant in Algeria, right? Thinking about Mao and the peasantry in China, those who are just brutally immiserated, they do not forget, right? That what they want Mm -hmm. back is land. What they want back is sovereignty. Maybe those in the cities have forgotten because they're getting integrated into the system. But I think it's uh, the, what I would say maybe to, to try to simplify it is that question of why have socialist revolutions been more successful in the periphery is number one, yes, the contradictions around, say, exclusion, dispossession, and hunger are more acute there. The denial of consumption is more acute, especially in the countryside, in the, in the colonies, right? And that gives rise, I think, to a, uh, a capacity for organizing the masses that, is not, that hasn't wow. been available in the core. Whew. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, Sorry, I said it's going to take a few minutes. No, 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 that was, I, 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 I'm just here snapping away thinking, okay, that is what we call a masterclass. Thank you so much for that. That was dope. That was dope. I mean, there's so many things to unpack there. Precisely, I mean, I think it's very important you mentioned Fanon. I mean, Fanon said in the colony, the base is superstructure and superstructure is the base. And I think it's very important that when we're talking about uh, understanding Marx as it pertains to the colonial context, we're not trying to, what's the word, extrapolate or project a kind of industrialized proletariat white working class movement to the global South. We're not trying to export that. We're trying to say, okay, the contradictions are more pronounced in the global South. That's why the social revolution took place in the way in which they did. So yeah, thank you for that. My next question then is, would be, okay, then you spoke about, you know, why, why we kind of organize on material lines as opposed to, let's say, ascriptive categories such as like race or gender. So again, if you're responding to that question, why would you say it's important that we try to organize people on the lines of, let's say, material or their class lines as opposed to, let's say, categories of like race or gender? I think maybe I would approach that question kind of slightly different. I think it's, it's important to organize. You can, like, it's important still to organize around, like say, anti-racism, right? Like it's not, it's not that one shouldn't yeah. do that, but one should do it in materialist terms. Also, okay. right? so, it, so it's to say that, like, look, there's a material basis to racism, right? To, let's say, for an example, anti-blackness, right? So it's like, how do you confront this issue is not simply, again, to seek inclusion, but to transform the underlying relations of property, right? And the relations of ownership, because it's not just a category of class either in the way some more Eurocentric, uh, say, Marxisms would emphasize, right? Yeah. Because the system does operate built upon, say, anti-blackness, right? It does operate mm-hmm. built upon race. Like, and and I, I think I, I have a definitely a different analysis in many ways than Cedric Robinson, but I think the point that race also yeah. underpins capitalism is important, right? And, but that doesn't have to be an idealist uh, understanding. So what, what do I mean by okay. that is like, look, that secondary contradiction. So if you have capital labor and underneath it, right, you have categories of people whose yes. work is entirely rendered as non-value. Right? So if there's labor theory of value that Marxisms have sought to problematize the way in which the value produced by labor is appropriated privately, right? Yes. But the hegemony of capital in that relationship is built upon categories of labor that are entirely non that are rendered non-being, right? That are given no value. Right? This is gendered, this is racialized forms of labor, right? That are denied, that are represented as lacking, like I was saying in the People's Forum discussion, that are as lacking in rational capacity, right? And so therefore their labor does need not be valued, right? So the way in which, say, Black people in the United States are still categorized and represented in ways that are not immediately 
let's say, related to the means of production, but the ways in which, say, notions of irrationality are ascribed, right? Notions around who is capable organizing and, and being sovereign and owning production is something I think so that question has to I think I think anti-capitalism has to take on anti-racism. It has to be yes. foundational. It has to take on a critique of how gendered labor has been devalued. But you but you I think to address, let's say racism, to address uh, patriarchy, gendered relations of power, one has to address the underlying relations of production. But it's not, I don't think it's enough to say, okay, we just organize along class lines, those who are dispossessed and those who are not a part of it also has to be addressing this question of why are certain forms, categories of labor entirely rendered outside of value, right? How has that come to be? Like how, for example, on a global scale, right? Those who are extracting minerals in Central Africa, why is there so less value given to that form of work, right? Why is there so less minimal value accorded there in the global production line, right? How does it, how does it come to be historically that some parts of the world and some people who are racialized in particular ways are so so devalued, right? Now, part of addressing that is a material transformation of, say, global South states becoming sovereign over their resources, right? To address yeah. the discrepancy in control over capital on a global scale is ultimately the root to addressing right, the power of race. So I would agree in that way, but like the language of class doesn't always get us there. But I think the language of looking at who is sovereign, who can own, maybe is more helpful in that way. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And again, this was an amazing episode. I'm going to leave Dr. Bikram's guest socials in the description of this episode. You are listening to another episode of the Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe, and share with your friends because this was once again another masterclass. Thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. That was, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.